This is Tracy Hitchens. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are across the globe. You are tuning into Tracy's Prog World. Thank you for joining me here on my brand new podcast chat show, and welcome to episode two, transmitting from the Gold Coast in Queensland, Australia. Yeah, I'm well and truly tucked down under, and not a Vegemite sandwich in sight, but the coffee's coming in strong, and that's quite important for me at the moment. So, um, Something just happened outside my window here. I can't help but say it's just so beautiful. Beautiful koala bear just climbed up a palm tree outside here. Just parked itself halfway up for a moment. Just outside the window here. You know what a privilege that is. And it's the winter and it's blue skies. And I'm in my T-shirt and it's fine to go out like this. And it's um, just fresh and warm. It's beautiful. Unlike the summer when it's quite a lot more stifling. Anyway, I have my first guest here today. But that's just in a moment. Um, I just wanted to go back to my first episode. I was sharing with you my vision for this podcast chat show, and I'm still actually calling out to you beautiful pre-post-menopause fans of prog rock music. Yes, you ladies, I'm one of you too. I just have this strong feeling that with your feedback, We could build together a more feminine presence full of wisdom, laughter, creating a particular character for the show between us so that all ages, colours and sexes would hop on board and enjoy the banter that we have, you know, created between us with our special guests from roadies, sound engineers, journalists, writers, your favourite artists, even you, the fans, could be interviewed. So if you're interested, please contact me at... Tracy Hitchings music at gmail.com. I can come back to that again later if you want to grab pen and paper if you've not got devices and you're listening in on somebody else's device. So um, I'll just repeat that once more, just in case you've just grabbed a pen and spell it out for you as well, if it helps. That's Tracy Hitchings, Tracy Hitchings music at gmail.com, and that's T R A C Y. H-I-T-C-H-I-N-G-S music at gmail.com. And there you have it, guys. So that brings me back to what's special about today. And that is that I have my first ever guest because <laughs> it's my second show. So with no further ado, welcome, Dr. Peter Yaxley. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be on your program. Oh, it's my pleasure too. It's great to have you here. So, Peter, you studied at the University of Queensland. You have a graduate diploma in family medicine. You have a Bachelor of Medicine and also a Bachelor of Surgery. You began as an intern at the Mata Hospital Brisbane for a year, then went on to the QE2 Hospital Brisbane for a year. Mm-hmm. You were then invited into the Royal Flying Doctors Service where you were stationed at Mount Isa in the north of Queensland for three years. As a flying doctor, you covered an area one third of the size of the state of Queensland, which is in fact eight times the entire surface area of Great Britain. How is that possible? <laughs> well, uh, there's no magic. It's just a fact, you know what I mean? There you go. If you just put a big uh, piece of tracing paper over the whole of England, <laughs> you'd, you'd be able to fit it in eight times into the state of Queensland. Yeah. Well, that's obviously that's what you're here to tell us all about, and not to mention your passion for music and and your rediscovery in prog rock in recent years, and that you have studied the art of filmmaking, including script writing, acting, producing, directing, and your own murder mystery film, Unearth, for which this is so incredible. You were responsible for all the above that's just mentioned, was nominated at the Hoboken Film Festival in New Jersey, USA. You attended and collected Best Foreign Film of the Year in 2012, along with your cameraman mate, Brian Doyle. Mm. So, Peter, where do I begin? (laughs) Perhaps. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot there. Where did you get all that from? Oh, I go, you know, (laughs) I I have my tricks. Well, perhaps we can just uh, go back into the TARDIS, Doctor, and Mm -hmm. take a little trip back there. Where do we begin? 
where would you like me to take you? Well, There's so much to talk about, is there? I've got so many things. It's been a full life. It's been a full life. I've still got a look to go yet, but um, I'm here about. I'm here about you, and I'm here for you. And I'll start a little bit about myself. I was born in Brisbane. I was born into a medical family. Uh, my mother was a, a sister at a hospital. My father was a surgeon at a hospital. Naturally, they got on well together. They had myself, my brother and my sister. And the three of us are all in the medical industry as well. My brother's a surgeon. Uh, my brother John's a surgeon. My sister Rona, she's a radiographer. Uh, and uh, I'm a general practitioner and um, also a skiner therapist um, and uh, a filmmaker, as you mentioned. So a few things that I've just got my... So tell us a bit about your father, because you say he was a surgeon too. What surgeon was he? My father was a urological surgeon. A urologist... U- urolog- <laughs> 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 Urologists um, deal with the renal tract, kidneys, bladders, uh, the genitals, sexual dysfunction, um, incon- uh, incontinence, urinary incontinence, and um, cancer, all sorts of things like that. So he was involved with the renal area, the kidneys, a urologist. And what sort of character was your father? Um, I was very proud of my dad. I, I, I love my dad. He's passed now, of course. But uh, he was he was a no-nonsense sort of uh, go-getter type of um uh, character, very accomplished himself. He had every degree under the sun that he could have got for his field, his surgical field, you know, like about 20 letters after his name. Wow. But um, he was also involved in Masons. Um, the Freemasons? The Freemasons, yeah. No. He was in the Freemasons for several years. He became a 2IC, a second in charge of Queensland at one stage. Um, and, uh, and unfortunately, he, he developed cancer and uh, passed away. He was only quite young. Huh? So, mm. oh, that's sad. And what cancer? He had a brain tumour. Oh, dear. A brain tumour killed him. But um, that was in the days where you had to be in the theatre when they radiographed you and they'd look for tumours or stones or what have you. And they put the lead down over the body, but they don't put it over the head. And because oh. uh, they all run out of the room when they take the x-rays. So that's through the x-rays. It's occupational hazard, isn't it? I mean, this is a wow. problem when you're mixing with chemicals or radiation. Or That seems so um, fair. What age did you say that he, he was? was? He was only 62. Gosh. Very young. Yeah. Yeah, but. You know, if you go out in the sun a lot, you're going to get skin cancer. If you're yeah. going to be in front of radiation all day, you're going to get yeah. some radiation. You, you, you were mentioning in the past that some funny stories about your dad. He had quite a character in respect of things that he would do in his own surgery in the back, his own little billy boiler and a cook oh, yes. on site and yeah, well, drink on site. <laughs> oh, dad was a, a typical boy scout. and I've got, I don't actually do what he did, but he had his own little... <laughs> His own little one-ring uh, stove in his room, and he used to cook his own meals for lunch. He'd, you know, not the usual salad sandwich. He he'd get a piece of tongue from the, <laughs> and boil it up and make some uh, um, uh, hot meat the dishes. Smells wafting through. It used to waft through the whole building, and it, all the Hospital. other staff used to say, "What's Doctor Yaxty got for lunch today? <laughs> What's on the stove today, Doc?" You know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, no, he, he enjoyed his cooking. He used to yeah. like cooking. Yeah. You know, he used to do all that sort of thing. And your mum? Mum was uh, well. She was the training sister. She was. She stopped for a while to have the children and bring us up, mm. and Dad continued his his work. Mm. But uh, no, she just became the house the housemaker. And your brother, he went on to be a top surgeon. He is still a top surgeon. He's a urologist too. He followed in Dad's footsteps. I couldn't make a decision. My favourite field was actually obstetrics gynaecology. But um, uh, I just thought, well, you know, if you have to pay $50,000 a year to just get insurance about getting sued, I don't want, you know, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to wake up 50 nights in a year to get paid nothing just to protect and myself. That's how, it was. that's how it well, was. Well, this is the way it's going at the moment. Medical indemnity is so high. Oh. You wonder why ch- surgeons and doctors charge so much is because they, their insurance policies are so high. Yes. Um, and people drop, sue at the drop of a hat. So uh, mm. you've got to protect yourself. And um, 
So it's very it's much... Going. It's the way the world is. It's a similar thing out here then to the States where the suing culture has always been larger than most other countries I've understood. It's become more like that, has it? Um, or has it always been like that? It's all, it's always been like that. It's it, it's human nature. Yeah. I think... Tough thing. If we got back in the TARDIS and went back to Jerusalem, <laughs> I'm sure they'd be like that in the marketplace, you know. It'd be like this all the time. That's just yeah. the way we are. Yeah. And history tends to repeat itself, I've found. Yes. History repeats itself. And unless you're a student of history and look back into history, when something new comes along, you think it's completely new, but it's not. It's, it's just another reactivation of something old or another cycle that we have to go through that, we've forgotten about what happened in the past. Yes. Mm. And your sister, she went in to be... She, not a radiologist, doesn't read them. She she does actually take the films, ultrasounds, x-rays. And, and of course, all the offspring in your family are generally following in suits, aren't they? Yeah. I think... Most of them. It's interesting, you know, because... It's a culture. <laughs> it's not just a culture, but I think, you know, we are born, my own personal feeling is that we're born into the families we want to be born into. Yes. And um, we came from a medical family. There's others who are political families, others who are musical families. Yes. Uh, they've all got talents and skills. And um, when you're brought up in a family where the same sort of concentrated education is going on, um, you naturally, when you're exposed to it, you become, you learn it through diffusion almost and, and, and you, you become it. Right, exactly, mm. yes, yeah. yeah. So when you were a young boy at the age of, say, 16 between or 14 and between the age of 14 and 17, mm. um, I know you have a passion for music. Was there a time that you ever struggled between medical or music? Did you struggle with that or was that just a no-brainer? Oh, well, yes to both. I, I struggle with it because I'd rather play guitar than to study. Yes. And, um, <laughs> but a no-brainer is, a, you know, I knew I wouldn't uh, be a doctor if I just played my guitar and keyboards all day. So uh, you have to, there's only 24 hours in a day, yeah. you know, yeah. and we all can't be good at everything. Mm. So you've just got to work out what you want to do with your life as a child and say, I would really like to do this. And what because, was that for you? Uh, because I like to help people. I like to solve right, problems. Yeah. And uh, I like to see people get better. And and people, when they get better, they do get appreciated and they thank you very much. And, and uh, that makes me feel good, yeah. the fact that I've been able to help and someone. And that's a great answer. So you passionately love music, but you saw a career in the medical world. Well, yeah, music's an interesting thing. I, I could... Um, uh, my first interest in music started, well, gee, back in primary school. I remember listening to music in the lunch hours. And it, it was the Beatles. It was the Beatles. It was 64. Um, I would have been about six years old. That's, yeah. I, was, I was born at 58, so I was six years old. And uh, I remember that. I remember the music. Mm. And it was the opening strum, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the twang. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's being a hard. That's right, yeah, yeah. G minus seven out of 11. Yes. You had one strum and that's it. And then that got me straight away. And I just, um, I didn't have, I didn't buy records. I used to retain the music in my head. Yeah. And so I really love this song and the song would go around and around in the head and different songs would go around in the head. And then when I uh, got myself a guitar, I started to self-learn. Yes. I did learn the piano too. Yes, yeah. I did learn the piano yes. for a while. So what did you play on the piano? Well, I had to play classical music, um, which is not what I wanted to do. No. I mean, you know, you can show your uh, um, keyboard acrobatics and do all scales and things like that and how clever you are, but... I'm not interested in Chopin or Beethoven. I just, I only wanted the teacher to teach me the chords and the progressions and the different yeah. things like that. And that's not what they wanted to do. So, yeah. So, you wanted to go more quickly to enjoy what you like to sing along to or hear well, on the radio or something like that. Yeah, that's yeah. right. I think yeah. so. Not just yeah. learn other people's music yeah. um, from a classical era because I couldn't see a future in that. I wouldn't be satisfied with playing that. I was, I wanted to make my own music. Mm. I wanted to uh, construct things yeah. and in that construction learn how it was done 
and get satisfaction out of completing a job. So at what age were you around when you discovered the world of prog rock music or prog music or progressive music? It would have been in my teenage years when I was in high school. Yes. And <clears throat> they, I didn't know what prog rock was. I only learned what prog rock was a few years ago. Um, by definition, progressive music, which is different to popular music in that, the, number one, the song lengths are completely different. And number two, the, the musicians in progressive music are a hell of a lot more talented than people in rock and roll. Uh, that What I've seen, what I've seen in, in their musicianship, although there are some hell of a talent, great talents in rock and roll, you know, guitarists, clap. It's just a so different forth. medium. It's a different yeah. medium. It's yeah. still a guitar. Mm-hmm. It's just what you do with it and the kind of music you want to play. But... Um, the progressive bands that I was enjoying but I didn't know they were progressive were things like Genesis, uh, uh, the band Free, uh, Uriah Heep, mm-hmm. um, uh, Pink Floyd, of course. Um, and, of course, these bands, the, the prog rockers will say, well, of course they're prog rock, that's great. But we didn't, on the radio, you didn't hear it as being introduced as prog rock. They'd say, we've got a new single here from yeah. the band, blah, 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 mm-hmm. and it's three minutes long and you listened to it and you enjoyed it and you hummed along and you said, that's a good song. Yeah. And those are the days where you actually bought vinyl mm-hmm. or bought a cassette and, um, and you owned mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And it was a lot different. So music's completely different these days yes. than it was back in those days. Yes, but the, the difference with the music was that um, for the uh, progressive rock music, they were so long, they didn't get played on, national, on the radios, radio stations. Yeah, they, they seem to start to stop playing they, them. There was a time. What I learned, this is yeah. what I learned. Mm. I learned about the progressive, I learned that the album versions were longer than the single versions of because course. radio has to be, they've got ads to pay for the airtime, et cetera. Yes. Uh, except if it's a government-sponsored station where there's no ads. But um, it's it, it was because the, the progressive rock groups put out the singles that were out on popular air radio that the masses of population learned about them and they become aware of them. Mm. And then they went to the albums, they heard the albums, and then they said, oh, I really like that. I wasn't aware that the mm. rest of the album was so different mm. and so mm. interesting. And then that's how the progressive rock bands in Australia became popular because I've discovered it was because they had a short single which was popular Mm. that a lot more people could um, listen to and appreciate and the progressive rock become crossing over into the popular music. Yes. Just like if I can digress, it's not progressive rock, but it is pre-menopausal. We'll talk about <laughs> Olivia Newton-John, for example, and and she went from uh, Take Me Home, Country Roads to, you know, Let Me Be There in the Morning, uh, country classics, which became number one hits not only in the country charts but in the popular music charts. Yeah. So you cross over, you get two audiences, mm. uh, you, two incomes instead of one. Mm. So the progressive bands of the 70s I thought were very clever yes. in that they they satisfied their own genre within their fan base in the progressive world but also they 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 teased the pop music people with single versions of their classic songs yes. uh, so that they would naturally want to investigate further, mm-hmm. like I did, and go mm-hmm. into the albums and put on the headphones of the shop and listen mm-hmm. to it and see if I wanted to buy it or not. Yeah. You know. So, so those, like, were the, those were the days. Weren't those they? were the days, weren't they? Because now it's completely changed. There's so many different new channels and places where you go and the way that you buy music is altered. It's been quite a big thing to get used to. How have you found that for yourself? I don't listen to much radio anymore. I've just got my, my bands that I follow. And uh, I have the websites, and that's how you—that's how you get to them. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Because radio is rubbish at yeah. the moment. It's terrible. I, yeah. I mean, I'm not into you find the rap. It that way. Well, that's just my opinion. I mean, other people like their own music, and everyone's got a right to like their own music. But um, uh, do you? If you can't whistle a song, it's good. it's not a tune. It's not a okay. song. Yeah. It's just noise. Do you ever listen to podcasts at all? 
Oh, I get a few podcasts. Um, yeah. I, I just type in something and hope I'll get something just out of it. Just to have an explore yeah. or something like that. Yeah, 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 I do. There's a few people out there that I that I follow. Not too many people, but a few poli- uh, political sites I follow and a few musical sites. But uh, And then there's the Tracy Hitchens Prog World, which is going to be <laughs> fascinating to follow. <laughs> Thank so, you very much. Yeah. <laughs> so... If we were just to take another trip again in the TARDIS and go back to the time when you finished school and you finished at the MITRE Hospital or MATA Hospital. MATA, yeah. Yeah, and, and also the QE2 Hospital in Brisbane mm. and you went on to be a flying doctor. Can you tell us about that and, and your um, experience there? Because you also ended up having to learn to fly or land a plane at least. Yeah, you got, you got <laughs> that too. You learned that. That's true. That's true. Yes. Well, there's a lot of things there. Um Medical school was uh, six years long. And then I had two years internship at two different hospitals. Uh, That is to um, get more hospital experience before you go out into the big wide world of medical practice and treat people without the umbrella of protection in the hospital system. Um, uh, And and then you, you treat the masses. When I finished my medical studies, I went to those two hospitals. But then after that, there was a job going uh, in the outback of Australia, up in northwest Queensland in Mount Isa. Uh, they have the copper, lead and zinc up there. It's a, it's a town in itself. It's the only state town in Queensland that's got its own power supply. <laughs> so when the state might be blacked out, that's got its own power supply. They're okay up there. They look after themselves. They're fine. And it's a hot, dusty place. But I love the outback. I just I was a Boy Scout and uh, I liked camping and I, liked, I just liked the outback. In fact, one of my favourite novelists was Arthur Upfield, and he I I was reading those back in high school and uh, university years. Arthur Upfield was a uh, was a um, Australian author who uh, wrote the Boney novels. Um, B-O-N-E-Y. He was a half-caste Aboriginal detective who used to work in the outback and solve murder mysteries and things. Oh. And uh, I just loved them because they were nice short books, but they were so well written yes. and uh, so different to anything else. Not like a Charles Dickens novel. I mean, Charles Dickens, you sort of read a whole page and all you've read is the description of the shirt the person might be wearing. That's not the kind of book I like to read. I like to just get the general gist of things so my mind can make up the character in my own mind and not be told what he looks like. Um, A lot of modern novels are written that way these days, not just Mm. giving you the exact description of what the person looked like and how how starched their collar was and all sort of stuff. Uh, Lots left to the imagination. Mm. So we're talking more of the creative side here I can see coming into. And also going back to when you were first a flying doctor, what did you find when you got up to Mount Isa yourself? What was it? What did you walk into? Was it... Just a, a, a building with a plane beside well, it. Yeah. What was it that you went to? Was it a village? Was I it... think there was a TV show going around the world at the time called the Raw, called the Flying Doctors. That's right. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That was by Crawford Productions, and they were an Australian film and television company who uh, did all sorts of TV shows. And the Flying Doctors was one of them. It ran for many years. I remember it. Yes, yes. Very well. <laughs> well, I was actually in Mount Isa base when the Crawfords phoned up Mount Isa base, wanted to talk to the pilot, and I said, okay, it's fine. As it turns out, one of the characters in the TV show wanted to leave the series and they were, away, they were thinking of killing him off. So there's going to be a plane crash. Uh-huh. Which is unbelievable because the Royal Flying Doctor Service has got a fantastic record. I don't think there's ever been a crash. They they service the planes very regularly. Every 100 hours, everything gets checked. The screws, everything gets completely checked. Every 100 hours, that's amazing. Yes, you yeah. wouldn't even get a major aircraft going through yeah, that sort of treatment. Yeah. Anyway, um, the safety record's incredible. We told them. So the pilot told the uh, the uh, production crew what the dials would look like. So they wanted to make it authentic for the show and um, a lot of the cases that they used in the television show were real case studies with different names from the Charleville base in Queensland. So um, it is based on fact, but, you know, I think 
I vaguely remember the TV show. It's uh, it, it, it was a lot of fun, and of course, I was up there at the time, and it yeah. was sort of yeah. So, what did me. you um, find yourself as a doctor with that? Because that um, there was a there was actually a piece of paper brought out about you being the jolly doctor, and they they wrote a piece <laughs> about yeah, well, they, they wrote a piece about you being actually here is the flying doctor. You were of what oh, they were yes, about, yes. really. Yeah, so that was a fascinating. Oh, thing. there was this. We had. Um, we must have had some notoriety from somewhere because we had a, a paper um, come, a paper crew come up from Brisbane, which is a two-hour flight from Brisbane on a jet, to do a story on me. They called mm. them Joe, your flying medic. That's it. Yeah, I remember yeah. that. You remember that? Yeah, yeah, I, do. I think you saw it. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, yeah, they just they they spent a day with me. Yeah, and they were my guests on the plane, and we flew to I think it was uh, was it Doomadgee or Burgtown or something. We do these weekly visits. It's usually a two-doctor base and uh, one doctor does emergencies and one doctor does the clinics. So you fly out to different outback towns uh, where there are no doctors. There's just a sister who's got a little house or uses it as a hospital. I fly in once a week and I, I have a clinic and we have the basic drugs there and the flying doctor box, antibiotics, antihistamines, emergency adrenaline, Lasix, all the sort of heart drugs and things. And uh, I do my clinic there and uh, fly out and take people home that are really sick that have to go back to Mount Isa to the major hospital. So as a flying doctor itself, yourself, um, what was the job? What was the, you know, what was the job? We've seen the films. We've seen the flying doctors. I, I remember it of my time. It was fantastic. So... Um, I can't remember him killing off the character, though. Um, so what what would your day be? For a clinic day, we'd be getting up at uh, 6 or 7 in the morning, sun up, uh, go to the hangar, which is out of town, a few minutes out of town. Uh, the aircraft, the pilot brings the, the aircraft out of the hangar and um, uh, it's all fueled up. We just jump in, probably have a coffee on the way. It's usually one hour's flight. Uh, in uh, our aircraft, which were Beechcraft, the Beechcraft Queen Air and King Air. The King Air is a pressurised twin-engine pr- turboprop that can go up to like 25,000, 30,000 feet, just like a jet aircraft. Mm. Uh, the Queen Air is an unpressurised aircraft which can really just go around ten to 12,000 feet and you don't have to have a pressurised aircraft that you know the windows open and not get sucked out, you know, you just have fresh air and it's a lot cooler. But um, uh, they were both functional aircraft that had um, tables in them for patients who were sick. They had all the medicines there, the ECG equipment. If basically like a flying ambulance or hospital and when we fly to our destination, we take our major equipment and we go to the um, the the local town hospital and run our clinic for a few hours, half a day normally, and we stop for lunch and then we fly off to the next location, do an afternoon clinic somewhere else, and then fly back to Mount Isa at the end of the day by about six at night. So it's a, it's a long day. I understand there were times when you would have a patient on board that you had to operate on. I delivered a baby on the plane just as we were coming into land. She should have been back in Mount Isa because out in the bush, when you get to about 36 weeks, you try to locate back to the main area where there's a hospital in case you get early con- contractions and so forth because things can happen in the outback and if you get obstructed labour, mum and baby could die. So delivered the baby quite successfully as we came into to land and must have been quite nerve-wracking <laughs> well when you're in the thick of it you don't think about him over you just yeah, do it yeah. you just do it you've got to do it yeah you, you get the adrenaline rush and shake after when you think what did i just do jesus i did that yeah so well, of course in yeah. mount isa you were mostly dealing with the aboriginal or as the indigenous people as they prefer to be known mm. and it took you some time to um be accepted by them didn't it yes yes the first year they don't talk very much because they don't know who you are and they don't trust you. What, I've, what I did discover is that I just was myself and I was polite and that's, And after 12 months when they knew you weren't going anywhere and you're going to stay for at least three years, um, they'd talk to you. And yes. They'd talk to you like a, yeah. a normal person, if yeah. I can say that. Yeah. It's just 
we come back to human nature. It's just human nature that you have these fearful things of new people in your life and and you don't trust them. But uh, there's some colourful characters out there. I bet there are, yes. What about um, the fact that you had to learn to land the plane? Um, I was, well, I didn't have to learn to land the plane, but I got on well with the pilot and um, the pilot was over 60. And he, okay. had, <laughs> and he had diabetes and I was, I was treating him and making sure he's fit enough to fly. I actually said to him one day, I said, you know, Ian, just in case you have a heart attack, mate, you know, do you think you, think you should show me how to land this thing? And he said, yeah, that's a good idea. I'll, I'll teach you anyway. Because he was always there. I was in the co-pilot seat, but it's dual, it's dual controls. Yeah. So he'd, he'd be doing the crosswords, talking to Tower, you know, <laughs> Fox, Dr. Del Mike, this is yeah. the man I was Tower coming in, you know, just working out the, the heart. And he'd say, take it down. So yeah. I just took it down. Just and what was that experience like? Oh, it was fun. Oh, yeah. It was great fun. It's it's like a three-dimensional push bike. <laughs> it's not just left or right. It's down, up, and left and right as well. And, uh, yeah, we had a bit of fun. The pilot yeah, played and a few tricks on me when I was in Europe. Oh, what tricks were those? <laughs> oh, got me up there in the co-pilot seat and he just rocked the he just rocked the, uh, the handle backwards and forwards and make the, the plane dip and <laughs> he says, you don't look very well. You know, <laughs> just wanted to see if I'd throw up, you know. Oh, charming. <laughs> yeah, great little fun games. But, no, they're just little games like that. But, yeah. uh, no, I, I learned how to land it in case there was an emergency, yeah. but I didn't have to land it at all. No, you never did. No. I was not you allowed to. to. I was well, not so allowed... you did do it, but you didn't have to do it. Yeah, no, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I didn't yeah. have to do it. Well, no one's allowed to take off except the pilot. Yeah. Uh, that's that's uh, Not many people know this, but... Taking off is the most dangerous time of the aircraft in flight because you're taking off. If you lose power <laughs> about 60 seconds into the flight and you just crash, you've got, two, you've got a whole plane full of fuel. Yeah. It just blows up like the Hindenburg, okay? Yeah, yeah. And that's why if you're coming into land, yeah. you, can, you can dump the fuel yeah. so you don't ignite it if, yeah. if there's a spark. But, no, the, it's, if I, the worst time's taking off. The wings have got the fuel in them. Mm. So uh, you've got full fuel, and if you stall, you crash, and that's mm. the end of it. And out in Mount Isa, did you ever deal with something like a deadly snake bite or...? come across anything like that um snake bites spider bites yes but fortunately they've got a good recovery rate and the, the anti-venines are good yeah yeah because um, what about the brown tail snakes as we know could be deadly if you get bitten by a brown snake and you start running the adrenaline in the body goes around and poisons you and shortens your life more quickly doesn't it so um, so you never came across that situation well uh that applies to all snake bites, I think, Tracy. Mm. Um, all snake bites, if you move, what happens when you move quickly, The circ- your body circulation moves quickly and the poison that's in the blood moves quickly around your body and you get sicker faster and you pass out and you become paralysed or stop breathing or whatever. So the idea is, is if you get bitten, we'll naturally get the snake away and then apply pressure to the area, mm. maybe even get ice all right. To decrease the circulation so that it doesn't move back up to your heart. And is it true you're meant to remain still? Well, if you're still and, or you immobilise the limb, hopefully it's only a limb that you're mm. bitten on, you can immobilise mm. the limb, mm. apply a tourniquet above the bite and apply ice to the leg so that it's basically in hibernation so you can get to a hospital and get an antivenine. Injected oh, into you. That's fascinating, isn't it? Um, mm. Did you ever see a crocodile out in the bush? Yes, I did. You did? I did, yeah. There's crocodile farms out there. Oh, right. Actually, I actually held one in my hands. So oh, a, really? A little baby one. <laughs> a little, like a little lizard. I've seen them in cages. but <laughs> Oh, yes, I've seen the big ones too. Yeah, yeah. that must be quite scary because that's where they are in Queensland. Up, up, that's the territory up there, isn't well, it? I was swimming yeah. in a river yeah. and I'm just... This, <gasps> I was during lunch here. I went down to the river with the nurse, and we had a swim in the, in the old creek. And and I only found out that's crocodile infested waters. I thought, <laughs> Jesus, what was that all about? Not very nice. No, no. Oh. So no, it was great fun up there. It's yeah. a different life, completely different. You're on another planet out yeah. there. So you were there for three years, serving mm. up there, and it must have been a great way of life. What What about your social life there? 
Oh, it's great. Because it's a very small place, wasn't it? Yes, I know. What did it consist of? Well, drinking. (laughs) (laughs) Because I think there was, was, it's a population of about 10,000. It's not a big city, Mount Mm. Isa. It's a mining city. So half the population mine, that's Mm. their job. And what do they do when they finish? They go to the pub. How many pubs? Oh, it's half a dozen for Mm. a small town. It's Mm. huge. But the biggest pub was the Mount Isa Club, the Irish Club. And um, they used to have the rock bands up there and I used to go and watch the bands playing. So I got interested in music. <coughs> Excuse me. Again. <laughs> and I got interested in music again. And, and uh, I spent my time when I wasn't um, doing emergencies. When I was on my emergency call week, I, you couldn't drink. But during the call week, you can come home and have a drink after work and yeah. go to the club and see the bands and whatever you and befriend them. And uh, because you, you're a regular and you go there all the time, you learn their set lists and, and um, you get to know the guys and drink with them and play with them and stuff. So it was all fun at the time. Yes. And I did some music when I was up there. I bought my guitars and bought my multi-track. I had a TIAC Tascam that I did my own little songs on. So Explain what that is. <laughs> a TIAC Tascam is a, is a cassette-styled studio. I think, didn't you win? You yes, won I did, many, many, many years ago. That's many. But just for anybody out there listening, if they're younger, they won't have a clue what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's like a multi, it's, it's like a mini studio and you can put the plugs into the back and record on individual tracks. So for people who are, like uh, my age, getting on to 60, you know what a cassette is. So yeah. a cassette yeah. is is a portable thing with, with tape. Yes. Which has got left and right going one way and left and right going other. So it's four tracks. Yes. Now, uh, a TIAC, a recording cassette tape, records four tracks in one direction, yeah. not two each way. Yeah. Not an A side and a B side. It's just one side and it's got four tracks that you record on so you can basically record you know uh, vocals bass guitar uh, drum machine or something and then then you can ping pong tracks and condense them down and free up another three tracks to record more tracks. It's a great little songwriting. Yeah and and because I was single man I I had plenty of time to do all this so I finished my studies the school was over and it was time to have fun. Yeah. So you had that amazing time in Mount Isa and mm. you eventually came back to uh, Brisbane or the Gold Coast. Gold Coast. Yeah, and you got married and had two beautiful children. I did indeed. Julian and Vanessa. Vanessa, yes. Settled in down here, mm-hmm. eventually opened up your own uh, surgery. Yes. Of which you're still running on the Gold Coast here, the top of the Gold Coast mm. in the Pacific Pines. Mm-hmm. And then you became interesting in film. Well, you was already interested in film, I should say. So you became interested in film, and can you tell us a bit about that and what happened? Right. Um, I've always been interested in film. I'm interested in lots of things. I've got lots of hobbies. And How do you fit it all in? <laughs> well, I, I did, but I found that the first 20 to 30 years I was getting tastes of everything all at the same time. And then by the time that I got to the stage where I Eventually had had to get divorced because it was all too much for me. So I got divorced and uh, I found myself with a lot of spare time. And then I thought, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to do a, an actor's course. So I went to an acting school and learned how to be an actor and I learned lines and got in plays and things like that. Did short films and, and projects like that. Learned my fellow actors. Uh, got to know them. Then I finished that course and I did a script writing course because I wanted to learn how to write scripts because I just used scripts because I was an actor. So I learned how to write scripts. At the end of that, I wanted to do a filmmaking course because I've got spare time. You know, you work as a doctor and you come home at night, you can either go to functions or you can um, go to parties go or, to parties, or you can be creative and I yeah. just wanted to be creative. Yeah. So... Um, I learned how to write a film script and I learned how to make a movie and I had to learn all about film stock and all sorts of things about timing, production, how you um, how you uh, divide the money up and pay for all the different things, how you get permission and, and contracts and all that sort of thing. So I just learned all about that and then I decided to myself, I think I'll make a movie. Right. Uh, I did make a short, which was successful. Um, 
uh, I made a short that I was going to put into the Trop Fest, which is like a seven-minute film festival down here. But it turned out to be ten minutes, and I, it just couldn't be cut down. I just I couldn't cut three minutes out of it. It'd make no sense at all. So I just decided I'd just put it on the shelf, and I used it as a as my show show reel for um, enticing actors into to be on my um, film project. Unearth. It's called Unearth. It was yes. a murder mystery that I wrote. And um, as as you said in the preamble, I was fortunate enough to won, to win an award for my first yeah. my first. That, I mean, that is truly amazing to go through all of that in between being a busy doctor and uh, get to the point where you're taking, because you produced it, so you got and auditioned all the people? Well, I knew the people that I was going to. I basically used people that I'd worked with in film school and, uh, uh, and, and I called in a couple of professionals and uh, Lucky Grills was uh, uh, a very well-known Australian actor mm. from the Bluey television series. That did come to England, actually. Did it? Yeah. It yeah. did, I'm, eh? I'm okay, sure. yeah. yeah. And he did that for, there were 39 episodes, that's three three series. And um, he he saw my short. I met him at a party one day. We'd had a chat for a while and then didn't see him for 12 months. And I thought, this is a great vehicle for Lucky. So I got permission from his doctor to talk to him, you know, because you have to respect people's privacy. And he chatted to me and he, he, he did remember me. And he said, yes, 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 I know you, Peter. Yes, of course. And I said, are you doing a film? Yeah, sure, send me a script. So he did. I did. And I didn't have to go through agents. I didn't have to do, you know, it's nice to know people and then they, they trust you. Yes. And they say, yeah, sign me up. And yeah. it, it was as simple as that. Yeah. yeah. He said, I can see what you can do. That's great. Let's do it. Fantastic. And he read the script. He's very happy with his role. He was a station master. Yeah. And you had the great Jimmy White, who's also a television, television presenter and also a radio announcer. <laughs> he and he and, and so you had a great crew and you produced it. So you took them all down to... Um, Tenderfield. That's it, Tenderfield. We went to Tenderfield for 10 days. We did a 10-day shoot down there for all the exterior shots yeah. and a lot of the railway station shots. Yeah. It was based around a real town called Tenderfield mm. and the real Tenderfield Museum mm. at the railway station. Mm. And uh, the interiors of the police station, et cetera, were done back on the Gold Coast because that's where a lot of the actors lived and it was easy to just do... Uh, weekend filming for the rest of the shots to um, complete the movie and then just edit it together. Yeah. And so your first main feature film, uh, big, big feature film, which is The Murder Mystery, what we're just talking about on Earth, it was put forward for the Hoboken Film Festival in New Jersey yes. and you went over there to enjoy the fun of it all mm. and walked away with the prize of walked Best Foreign Film. Best Foreign Film. Yeah. Which is truly amazing. And then you came back here to the Gold Coast and you had showings back here, didn't you? Yes, I did, yeah. yeah. We had a big one at Australia Fair and it was packed out. It was just it was the biggest cinema in the complex and it was chock-a-block full yeah. and everyone was there because they all wanted to see Lucky. Of you know, course. Yeah, because unfortunately he died. Oh, no. He died three months after off, um, finishing the film and he was so happy. We had the rap party and he, he said, look, this, was the, this is the most enjoyable, relaxed shoot I've ever been on. It's just, 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 just you work so well, you get on so well mm. and it's just really gave me a, a real yeah. good high, you know, yeah. to to hear that from a, a TV legend, film legend. Absolutely. And um, yeah. and we, I still speak with his wife now to this day. We still send Christmas cards and talk from time to time. That's great, isn't it? Mm. I've heard Maria has uh, th thinks very highly of you, Maria Grills. Mm. So that's a wonderful wraparound, but you make a feature film like that, it's an independent, it's a first movie, it gets that accolation. And then you go back and just be a doctor. Mm. Why not just be a filmmaker? Well, <clears throat> um, I'm not in the club. You've got to be in the club, mm. you know. Yeah. And I found out overseas that uh, I'm an outsider. Um, getting the award means I could go to the after parties, but really there's not much, you know, I realised it's not really for me, you know. So you would probably have to make such a change and give up what you're doing and then to have a lot of money to fund trying to get into the right places and know the right people. Is it? Is it a bit like that? Is it? 
it's a bit similar to the music industry in some ways. That well, I it's suppose not what it could you know, be, but it's the, you know? the acting world is very is a lot different to what you might think it is. Right. What we think about, it. and uh, uh, I don't want to burn any bridges or break anyone's concepts of what their yeah. actors are like, but. Um, uh, I love filmmaking. It's very creative, mm. and I can do it all myself. Yes, you know. And I found the major problem for me when I got home. I, I did encounter a problem when I wanted to promote the film mm. because I'd done it all myself and I didn't have to use anybody else. They thought, well, oh, that's no good. Yeah, so that's yeah. right. I felt like Orson Welles, you know, <laughs> just doing Citizen Kane, and then no one else wanted to touch you because. You're such a smart ass. You can do everything. You can direct, produce, mm. screenwrite, mm. produce, uh, and you can do it all yourself. And you don't really need people. Mm. But I do need people. Yeah. It's just that I was lucky enough that I could do it myself in my spare time. So that was that was just something that you ventured out on, and you had something to prove to yourself, and it worked out so well. So I suppose we've you've learnt much more now, and you're still going back into script writing and got some great ideas. Oh, I've got a few. I've got uh, I've got two major scripts. So I've, I've got a. A number. I've got a horror film. I've got uh, a murder, a hospital comedy, a hospital drama, two major scripts, and uh, a few other bits and pieces. But at the moment, I'm just doctoring. Yes. Uh, you got to pay the bills. It's okay. There's a lot of starving actors out there mm-hmm. who are looking for the next job, and mm-hmm. they're halfway through one job while they're looking for the next script to move on to. And I hear about that all the time. They're chameleons. They mm-hmm. they go from one thing to the next, and they're always on the they're they're on the road all the mm-hmm. time looking for another job. So, um, but with medicine, at least it's a um, it's not nine to five. Usually, there are odd hours sometimes, but. It varies from day to day. You never know what's going to walk in through the door. And um, at least you have regular work. Mm. You have regular work. And I can still pursue my hobbies and pastimes such as music and film. To have a presence with music and film these days, it all seems to be the case that we need to be on social media promoting ourselves. When I first started out, I know that it wasn't there. And now it is. And I have to be up on wanting to learn about that, even if I don't want to. So how does that sit with you if you were going to bring out uh, new films or sell your scripts or do your own film again? The fact that, you know, you, you'd need to have your social media pages up and running as platforms so people can find out who you are and you can put yourself out there. How does that aspect, because it's so new to us, it's not the world that we knew when we started out, how does that feel to you, this new world and way of putting yourself out there? Because it's great from one aspect, everyone's connected, but it is also a different work, a harder work on another level because it's a mm. bit of an unknown quantity. It's an interesting concept, isn't it? Because it affects all walks of life and all people and what they do and how they how they function. So with respect to music, music's different these days because it's all iTunes, it's all digital, it's all up in the cloud. There's no physical product anymore. People that I know, the prog rockers too, they love an album. They love something in their hand. It's got to be tactile. It's a, you know, an album cover is really, really gets you. Yeah, you know? it I does, mean, doesn't it? Just think of the iconic mm. ones, Sergeant Peppers. Oh, and yeah. Pink Floyd. I mean, they yeah. all have, you know, and to have an album instead of a little cassette. Yes. Or, yeah. or a CD cover for something so intricate and wonderful like that, to have it in a tiny picture takes away the pleasure of looking at an album cover mm. while you're listening to the album yeah. with your headphones on. Yeah. Yeah. And you've got to have headphones on because that's that's the best way to hear it. Yeah. Although a lot of popular music is mixed with a mono mixer. I know that's what John Lennon used to do all the time because he said, well, people are going to hear it on the radio. It's going to be mono, so we want to mix it in mono because mm. that's what they're going to hear. Yeah. But, of course, the Beatles did the stereo and mono. Mm which was at that time very clever mm. because people bought both the mono mix was different to stereo mix yeah. and um, and they'd be getting twice as many royalties. Yeah. I bet I bet you don't know who the rich, <laughs> who the richest performer is in the world 
or who has the most records of one, which is the most popular song of all time, which you don't know. Okay, so if I took a wild stab in the dark, because I, I know that you're... I know that your favourite of the Beatles. I was shocked when I found out. I know your favourite of the Beatles, so it could be Paul McCartney or it could be something like White Christmas or it could be... <laughs> I'm taking a stab in the dark now because, I mean, I mean, you're... Real, you're vicious. You're, you stabbed me right in the dark because you got it right. It is I White did. Christmas. Oh, my God. It is White Christmas. Bing Crosby's White Christmas is the most popular. Now, why? There's lots of reasons oh, why. Okay. You guess some. Oh, because it's played every Christmas and he's so old okay. and it's been going around for The years. album comes out every gone, year, okay? Yeah. Comes yeah, out every yeah, year. Yeah. It's not like one album that's gone. Yeah. Every year, yeah. Christmas albums come out yeah. in the month of October <laughs> and they're on the shelves for three months. <laughs> and not only that, when he came out, they were all 78s. Yeah. And then everyone bought the 78. <laughs> and then they bought a thing called an album, which is 33 and the third, yeah. a minute. Yeah. And they all bought that. Yeah. And then they all had to buy a single, a 45 single. <laughs> and then 10 years later, they developed the cassette and then they developed the CD. Yeah. And then, hey, let's throw in a movie, make a movie about it. So you've got a film mm-hmm. which came so out. So it keeps on, going around. It keeps going yeah. on. So yeah. the older artists, the yeah. people who've been around for longer, have their records sold in, in a lot of different formats. Yeah. That, that generates them more money. Whereas today, sorry, guys. It's all out on the air and it's only going to be one hit and one person will buy it and 100 people will, will flog off his MP3. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's the world today. Yeah, So you've got to make your money touring or something or merchandising. I'm sure you'll be talking about this in your podcast in years to come. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I've seen it all done that. It's just a business. Music's a business, eh? It's a business. And it's a pleasure. And a pleasure having you on the programme as well. And, of course, we didn't get to talking about your re-entry into the progressive rock world about nine years ago where you literally found yourself in the middle of the Mediterranean and literally got married into the progressive rock world. So hopefully you'll join us again at a later date. Is that okay with you? Oh, I'd love to come. Okay, that's wonderful. Well, you've all been listening to Tracy's Prog World out there. I hope you've enjoyed this uh, first show with a guest. Um, It's certainly been an experience for me and I hope for Dr. Peter Yaxley. (laughs) Excellent. Yeah. And um, we'll tune in again. Peter will be coming back again, along with other guests, of course, all different sorts of people. And uh, yeah, so from Tracy's Prog World to all of you out there, please take care of yourself. I look forward to you tuning in with us. Not too short a distance in the future. Okay. Bye bye for now.